0: And welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for preventative mental health, love and compassion. Hey, it's really great to have your company. I'm Caroline Heim, and here's Dr. Christianheim. Hello. And today we continue our series reading Dr. Heim's book, Negotiating Diversity with Insights from Science and Clinical Psychiatry. In today's episode, we're going to first look at altruism. There are some amazing facts in this episode about altruism and the differences it makes in the brain. Then we go on to look at beliefs. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe, spread the word and recommend them to others. As usual, I'm going to be interrupting and asking Dr. Himes some questions. Here we go. To reach acceptance requires a choice to be curious and and trusting rather than reticent and overly hostile. This takes a degree of altruism. Altruism and trust have their networks in your brain. Altruism and trust in your brain. Altruism is selfless concern for others. Does true altruism exist? Science has not resolved this. Altruism was a puzzle to Darwin as he formulated his theories of natural selection. Is altruism mere manipulation of others to satisfy one's own needs? In line with evolutionary principles, individuals may lay down their own needs for the greater good. Still, they gain personal satisfaction after self-sacrifice. If others benefit, I benefit, as Richard Dawkins argues. We should not be surprised to find individual organisms behaving altruistically for the good of the genes. For example, by feeding and protecting kin who are likely to share copies of the same gene. Such kin altruism is only one way in which gene selfishness can translate itself into individual altruism. Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, 1976, explains altruism as acting in the interest of our genes and the information they contain. The closer you are genetically to someone, the more likely you will be to be altruistic towards them. I'll die for my country, but not for any other country. You help your family out, right? That's what family do. Of course I love him. He's my brother. Don't you touch my baby. I wouldn't die for my brother, but I would die for two brothers or eight cousins. Our behaviour is evidence to support the idea of kin-altruism. My observation is that our human life cycle demands the growth of altruism, selflessness, in all of us. As babies, we are totally dependent, totally selfish. Survival depends on our needs being fulfilled by someone else. As we grow, we need to become more independent and selfless. Selfishness is curbed by siblings with whom we share parents or caregivers. We then learn reciprocity in socialising with peers. Later, when choosing a partner, we need to consider another person's needs as equal to our own. In rearing children, we selflessly subordinate our own needs for the sake of the children. Progressive selflessness continues when we are called upon as grandparents to help take care of our own children's children. This is kin altruism in action. Altruism reaches further in people who adopt children. They dedicate their lives to caring for others who do not share their genes. Something more is going on. This altruism helps the survival of our entire species. Dawkins's science assumed that we're only atoms and molecules driven by chemical reactions and that free will and choice are only illusions. We're mere vehicles for genetic expression. Science has progressed since Dawkins's 1976 idea a more nuanced debate about altruism continues. We may, in fact, have real choice when it comes to altruism, on a day-to-day level at least. Altruism in the brain may work like the smell of freshly baked cookies. When we're aroused by the smell of cookies, we have a choice to eat or not to eat. In altruism, empathy is aroused in us by something we say or hear, say, news of a local homeless shelter needing funds. This may touch us like the smell of a Fresh cookie. We then have a choice. Be altruistic or not. You hear about a hurricane in Haiti. You see news images of suffering. Empathy touches you. Now you have a choice. Do I donate some money to disaster relief efforts or not? Your choice. It feels good to respond to empathy with altruism, just as it feels good to eat a cookie. Altruism and empathy are linked. Empathy moves us, and we can choose to be altruistic as a result. We are clearly kinder towards closer relatives, but we are also capable of sharing altruism with distant others, even people in other countries devastated by hurricanes. Perhaps, as articulated in one study, there are different types of altruism. Kin-based altruism, reciprocity-based altruism, and empathy altruism. Kin-based altruism is the selfish gene altruism, which we feel towards relatives, Dawkins' idea of a gene preserving itself. This type of altruism makes use of memory networks in the brain. Reciprocity-based altruism is you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, doing something good and expecting a good in return, as explained by social exchange theory. This is the basis of our economy. It involves mutual trust, rising oxytocin levels, and the dopamine reward system in our brains. These chemicals make us feel good for being altruistic and more inclined to continue being altruistic. Ah, so we still get a reward in each of these in both kin-based and reciprocity-based. Oh, most definitely. Most
1: definitely. I'll even argue that even in empathy-based altruism, we get a reward. And quite frankly, I don't know why we're so hung up about it. It's okay to get a reward ourselves.
0: (laughs) It's true. Empathy altruism is moved by empathic concern for others. It is putting oneself out without thought of return. It is benefit to another without benefit to self. It is based in empathy pathways involving the brain's anterior cingulate cortex, affecting our connection with others, the amygdala, generating fear and pain in response to others' pain, and the striatum, affecting how our emotions shape our movements. Compassion, altruistically deciding to be helpful towards others, is mediated more in the frontal lobe, in compassion, we're motivated to be pro-social rather than anti-social. We're still refining our understanding of our motivations for pro-social behaviour. We still do not fully understand altruism. The debate continues. We may indeed be selfish, but morally motivated. So let's just clarify that distinction between empathy and compassion, just really simply.
1: Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. Uh, empathy is a total feeling state. Whereas compassion has a thinking component where the question is asked, how can I be helpful here? Okay, great.
0: So let's consider an extreme example. Extreme altruists, heroes and bravery award winners who risk their lives for others, tend to have grown up internalizing the idea of altruism. Altruism becomes their brain's default mode, and we generally admire and reward them. Being a genuinely selfless Empathy altruist takes commitment to a lifelong pattern of altruistic behavior. So, are you saying that this is perhaps like learnt behavior then? Yes,
1: I definitely am. And a lot of our culturally informed behaviors are actually learnt. We grow up and we learn these things. But that's another debate, okay? The distinction between what is inherited and what is learnt from the environment is starting to break down in science, and maybe the two are actually one of the same thing. And that kind of brings us back to what we were talking about last week with cultural inheritance, doesn't it? Most definitely. In fact, it's a culturally inherited thing. If we culturally value altruism, then we will actually teach our children to be altruistic. And so it is, in that sense, a learned behavior, and it's a valued behavior. Whatever we value in our society, we will teach our children and they will grow up doing.
0: Reciprocity-based altruism is a norm in society. Without it, Even our economy would break down. This brings in the issue of trust, as all business and personal transactions involve some degree of trust. People who try to flout business trust and make illegal gain are dealt with by the law. The law ensures that there are limits to our deceitful behaviour to allow trust to flourish. We jail the selfless and deceitful. Reciprocity in society works. It is good, and with trust and cooperation, we can all gain Once reciprocity altruism becomes established in a society, it cannot be overcome. People who are known to be particularly trusting have a larger prefrontal
1: cortex and insula. Wow, that is a huge finding. Yeah, it is. And I suppose we always get uh, just fascinated when we see that behaviours actually show up in the brain as physical differences. But they do. It's actually real.
0: Feelings of trust are mediated by oxytocin, which also mediates feelings of love. The higher the oxytocin levels, the more inclined we are to be loving, kind, and trusting. If we choose to trust, we raise oxytocin levels, which lead us to be more trusting. It's a positive cycle. If we choose not to trust, we lower oxytocin levels, which lead us into distrust. It's a negative cycle. Oh, you must see that sometimes with your patients, huh?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and this, is, this is the thing. And this is the finding of the science that choice is actually so important. Mm, yeah.
0: We need to depend on each other, trust each other, and rely on kindness from each other. Trust will beget more trust in society so that we can all benefit. Through this, it may be seen that our sense of fairness and trust may indeed be innate. Choosing altruism and trust helps the mere exposure effect. It hastens curiosity and acceptance and shortens initial hostility. There are many benefits to choosing trust and altruism. To encourage you to make this choice, I'll offer you these added scientific insights. People who choose altruism process emotions well. Extremely selfish people do not. Another profound finding. Yes, it is. The medial prefrontal cortex regulates behaviour and helps emotional processing with the help from dopamine, released from the ventral tegmental area and experiences pleasure in the nucleus accumbens. Pleasure and pain help us learn, so altruism and effective emotion processing are learned behaviours. To help choose altruism, we must temper hyper-individualism. All Kenyan children exhibit altruistic behavior. This compares with 8% of US children. Children in societies focusing on individual success are less altruistic. Children can be taught that relationships are important. This can no longer be taken for granted. Broader culture, Parenting and social structures influence individuals, particularly children, to choose altruism. This positively affects their brain chemistry. Choosing selfishness instead of altruism may shrink your amygdala, leading to conduct disorder, aggressiveness, and a lack of empathy. In antisocial people, rage and fearless impulsivity from the amygdala unfortunately evoke pleasure. Higher oxytocin levels are associated with trust, empathy, and altruism. Altruism can be fostered through positive parenting, compassion training, mindfulness, introspection training, and more. We're born with the potential to be extremely selfish, extremely selfless, or anything in between. Our level of empathy is dependent on parenting, kinship, relationships, and broader culture and society. We learn altruism and empathy. Oh my gosh, this is such a great finding because we can actually learn it, so we can actually grow those parts of our brain, can we?
1: We can definitely grow those parts of our brain, but I come back to the point that our society has to value it. True. Otherwise, we're not going to pass it on culturally.
0: As I see in my office day to day, choice is real. As a psychiatrist, I cannot force anyone to carry out my treatment suggestions. Some follow my suggestions, others do not. It is, I believe, a freely made choice. 98% 98% of the population believe that they have this free will for day-to-day choice. The choice for altruism can be difficult because it costs money, time and stress. What should I do? Are my feelings right? Am I the right person to help? What if I do the wrong thing? Do I even have the right to help someone I don't know? In negotiating diversity, we'll need more than kin-based altruism. We'll need to reach past reciprocity-based altruism into Empathy-based altruism, and make a choice for others in spite of the money, time, or stress. In our society, making this choice is becoming more difficult for several reasons. The belief that we have no choice, the effects of marketing and consumerism, and hyper-individualism influencing our values. If our broader culture values altruism, making this choice will be easier. If not, it'll take more individual effort. Take-home message. Choosing altruism helps move from hostility to curiosity to acceptance. This is a mere exposure effect. The next scientific sojourn is into belief. We tend not to handle this area well as it evokes strong emotion. We often clash with and walk away from people when beliefs differ. To mitigate against this, we'll survey belief to help understand how it works in the brain. Belief in your brain. Belief is a complex area made more complex by definition inaccuracies. First, we'll look at what belief is, then, we'll see how it works in the brain to understand how we can use it to help negotiate diversity. Belief is a conviction that something is so. But belief in science is different from belief in faith issues, which are different from belief in opinions. Some belief is based on evidence, and some on little or no evidence. Belief in faith issues is often pitted against the scepticism of science, but even scientists need to have faith and believe. They have faith in the scientific method and need to believe the results of the studies. We'll consider three very different types of belief. Number one, belief in objective science, fact and theory. Number two, belief in faith issues. And number three, belief in opinions, subjective evaluations of self, others and ideas. Belief in objective science, fact and theory. This belief relies on evidence, the scientific method, and experimentation. It relates to the physical world and strives to be objective. We change our beliefs in this area collectively as a society depending on advancing scientific observations and measurements. In cosmology, we used to believe that there are nine planets in our solar system. Now, it's only eight. In psychiatry used to believe that food didn't influence mood, but recent discoveries show that food affects the gut's microbiome, and this is connected to the brain and mood. Belief in science isn't a matter of personal choice. Belief in faith issues. This belief relies on faith. It relates to what we can't see and don't understand, the metaphysical world, the afterlife, if it exists, and existential issues. It is subjective. Changing belief in this area is conversion. Unlike belief in science, it is influenced by culture, family, emotions, and personal choice. Belief in opinions. This belief relies on a mixture of evidence, past beliefs, emotions, and personal choice. It mixes objectivity and subjectivity. It relates to ephemeral ideas about ourselves. Hey, I'm a great guy. I'm a lousy idiot. I wish I was good. And others. What a great mother she is. Oh, he's a jerk. And ideas or things. I think they're a great soccer team. Oh, he's a great politician. I believe in the ideals of third-wave feminism. We think opinions are based in objectivity, but the reality is that they are subjective, and we look for objective evidence to support our subjective positions. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And this is such a a big thing on platforms such as Twitter. Well, on any platform. Well, it's true. It's opinions, 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 you
1: know. It is. It is. And we use the word belief uh, without defining it. And it is so different because as a scientist, um, belief means something very specific. Yeah. And in faith issues, including atheism, Belief means something very different, and as a psychiatrist, I work with a lot of people who have problem beliefs about the subjective selves, and that's based on a mixture of objective and subjective.
0: Belief helps the brain process information and negotiate an environment. Belief in the brain is a shorthand map to negotiate our knowledge gaps in the known world, belief in science, the unknown world, faith issues, and the ephemeral world of opinions beliefs are efficient but inaccurate our brains are quick to form subjective beliefs take meeting someone new the brain quickly needs to know friend or foe killer or healer useful or annoying easygoing or uptight the brain needs quick beliefs to negotiate the challenges of a new person a first impression our first impressions are not based on good information but on our existing beliefs previous experiences and on our emotions and social needs They're bound to be inaccurate, but they'll get us through. Our three types of belief areas are very different shorthand maps for the brain to understand different environments. Beliefs in objective science, fact, and theory are maps for us to navigate the known physical world. When faced with a challenge to our objective view of reality, a miracle or a paranormal event, we usually choose an explanation in line with our previous beliefs. This is mediated in the right frontal lobe. Belief change in science is continuous but slow. It involves all of us, and we need to be as sure as we can. Belief about facts involves recalling memories. Believing an event occurred and remembering it doesn't always coincide, and this causes problems in establishing what really happened. A courtroom is often filled with differing beliefs about so-called established facts. Objective reality cannot always be known, but is, due to many assumptions, belief dependent. Beliefs in faith issues are maps for us to navigate the metaphysical or unknown world, what we cannot see and do not understand. This type of belief is associated with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, an error important for emotions, sense of self, and will. Being thrust into existence on this planet and having life and needing to survive will naturally give rise to questions Will my existence continue? Does it serve any purpose? Why do we exist? Answers to these questions are scientifically unknowable or excluded. Therefore, they become questions of faith and involve a different, more subjective type of belief. Belief in opinions. Subjective evaluations of self, others, and ideas are shorthand maps to help us understand opinions about things like me, you, and ideas. As mentioned, they mix the objective with the subjective. Much of my work is dealing with this type of belief in individuals. Many brain areas are involved in belief. The anterior cingulate cortex, area of empathy. The chordate, to coordinate learning, thinking and feeling before action. And the anterior insula, empathy and emotions. The involvement of these networks indicates that belief in the brain is associated with knowledge, emotions, will and actions relating to other people. Let's look more closely at these belief and knowledge. We know that something is true when we feel comfortable with it and it feels familiar. This is cognitive ease. To believe anything we have to know something already and extend that knowledge. You meet a new colleague and make a first impression. James will be part of a team and he'll work close with you. Your brain is busy making, confirming and refuting first impression beliefs about James. You hope he's safe and okay to work with. You're relying heavily on feelings, observations, which later become reliable knowledge, and prior knowledge. You remember what other people named James were like. This seriously informs your first impression of this new person. We all make inaccurate, bold judgments based on feelings and prior belief rather than our objective observations and knowledge. To change this, we need to keep our emotions in check. This is the aim of science. The more you can base a belief on objective knowledge and evidence, the closer it will approximate reality. Knowledge and reason from our frontal lobe are useful to forming accurate beliefs. Okay, just throwing something out here. um, So what do you think about the idea that in this post-truth world, that we could perhaps be living more of a belief world, that beliefs have the potential to supplant, say, the truth embedded in scientific fact for each of us?
1: Okay. Now this is very contentious because the scientific side of me can't support the idea that we live in a post-truth world because, well, how do you even support that truth? All right. If we live in a post-truth world, we can't even make that statement. Okay. However, science isn't quite based on truth. It approximates truth little by little by amassing more and more evidence. And what I suppose, a post-truth world does is just question all the uh, assumptions that science makes in its quest to approach truth. And science itself is actually moving in this area. Now, I say moving in this area, yeah. but I don't think a scientist would actually say, yes, we live in a post-truth world. No, I don't think so either. i was just being contentious.
0: <laughs> Why not? Provocative. Out it goes. Belief and emotions. Belief determines the emotions we experience. Beliefs and desire together create expectations which lead to positive emotions such as surprise and happiness or negative emotions such as disappointment or unhappiness. Positive emotions occur when desire is fulfilled and belief is confirmed. Negative emotions occur when desire is frustrated and belief is refuted. Desire, I want to eat. Belief, there's food in the fridge. Action, go to fridge. Emotion, Find food, happy. Belief confirmed and desire fulfilled. No food, unhappy. Belief refuted and desire frustrated. If you're in a race and believe you'll win, you'll be unhappy with second place. If you believe you'll come last, you'll be even happy with second last. Belief confirmed to happy. Belief refuted to unhappy. Desire frustrated to unhappy. Desire fulfilled to happy. If you see a snake, your belief about the snake will determine your emotional reaction. Your belief in turn is influenced by your level of knowledge about snakes. See snake, belief it's deadly, to fear. See snake, belief it's harmless, to no fear. Our emotions and desires can override our beliefs. Invitations to sex, more chocolate, or driving a car really fast are often at odds with our belief in what is the right thing to do. Emotions influence behavior in this world, but these are tied to belief. Emotion in the limbic system and belief work together. Belief and will. Your will, desire, preference, resides in your orbitofrontal cortex. It's you, the decision maker, the driver. Our knowledge regarding the will is vastly incomplete, but we use it daily for every little decision we make. Everybody has choice. Choice, intention, autonomy, and self-responsibility are part of being human. Free will may or may not ultimately exist, but daily we're making thousands of choices in freedom. Will, our capacity to make these choices, shapes belief. As an example, a much higher percentage of atheists believe in evolution than do theists. Will, in the orbitofrontal cortex, influences belief. Belief Heuristics and Laziness The brain likes to discover things in its own way. Its method is mainly heuristics, trial and error, educated guesses, and rules of thumb before reaching conclusions. Through heuristics, step by step, we form internal representations of environments like our houses and our cities, internal maps, or internal representations of people, interjections, or or internal representations of ideas such as the theory of evolution, the law of gravity, or the law of diminishing returns, knowledge. Yet our internalizations of these aren't objective, they're subjective and unique to our brain. Nobody knows, James, the way you do. Nobody understands evolution the same way as you do. Your internal map of your house is different to everyone else's. All of these internal representations are built up in us, step by step, based on our previous beliefs and are unique to our brains. The brain builds these up using the least amount of effort. The brain is lazy. It relies heavily on past belief templates assumed to be correct to amass knowledge and make decisions. It's not a perfect system, but it works quickly and well. Because of this, we're all subject to our own belief-based thinking errors about anything and everything. That's how the brain uses belief. It first likes to be comfortable about its own beliefs and only afterwards will it consider objective challenges to its beliefs. Remember new team member James? We had a lot of beliefs about him even before we met him. This helped us quickly negotiate him. Then we became more objective about him by questioning our beliefs about people called James. This helped us out of our belief-based prejudices about people called James. We got to know him more as he really is. To negotiate diversity, it helps to understand the different types of belief and how belief works in the brain. This makes it easier to understand that objective belief in science can be discussed using evidence. Belief in faith issues is more subjective and unknowable. Opinions, beliefs about ourselves, others and ideas are deeply individual and subjective, but that we like to prop up our own opinions with some objectivity. Our brains use our existing beliefs to amass knowledge and make decisions heuristically and with little effort, so we all naturally have blind spots. This has led to the study of what is now known as unconscious or implicit bias. Moving to a live and let live or an agree to disagree stance is highly desirable. Understanding this will make acceptance easier. Chapter 4 will propose a method for doing this. It's a good assumption to make that everybody knows something that you do not. This is a self-evident and useful belief. It makes respecting others' beliefs easier when you realise that some of their beliefs are based on knowledge you do not know or a reality you have not experienced. Your scepticism is often tempered then by humility. Take-home message. Each individual brain has its own subjective belief system. Others know things we don't. Science aims to amass evidence for objective agreement. Our scientific understanding of beliefs is limited, but we can appreciate that beliefs are unique. Our brain needs beliefs to navigate known and unknown worlds and to help negotiate a sea of diverse opinions and people. We are all in the same boat when it comes to belief. We cling to our beliefs, get challenged by others' beliefs, and hope that others will respect our beliefs. Mutual respect for differing beliefs is easier when you understand how belief works in the brain. Respect tolerating uncertainty and a live and let live attitude will serve as well as we negotiate diversity. Take her message, to negotiate diversity, respect others' beliefs and your own. This is such a sensitive area that respect each other's beliefs is now a platitude in our society. It can, however, be achieved by understanding that belief, be it in science, faith issues or opinions, is only an internal map for the brain. It has only a tangential relationship with reality, except in science where we aim to match belief with reality through evidence. Well, that's it for today. Can you believe that? I'm actually not that great (laughs) at making jokes. I got it. Okay, you got got it? it. All right, good. That was funny.
1: Okay. (laughs) Jeez, it's not funny. I believe you're great at making jokes.
0: Oh, that's good. I like that. (laughs) Please join us next episode for some more fascinating explorations into science and the brain. If you like this content, jump onto our website and explore more. Catch you next time.